It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the popular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. The big questions we're asking this week, could we still see a parliamentary vote on Theresa May's withdrawal agreement before Christmas? Is there any way that this will all be sorted by March 29th next year? And why are these questions still unanswered? I'm Connor Pope and I'll be discussing that with Progress Chair Alison McGovern and Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd. Later on in the show, our colleague Stefan Rolnick interviews Luke Lithgow from Infax about the way news media is covering Brexit. News over the weekend suggests that there have been conversations taking place in number 10 about a public vote. Alison, can I come to you first? Do you believe that? Not only do I believe it, but I know that Ben Bradshaw was actually on the television talking about these meetings. And this is actually like a bit of an insight into the way that Sunday papers work. Because um, for real like kind of Brexit watchers, they would have noticed that like when the first of these meetings happened, delegation of Labour members of Parliament went into the Cabinet office to just explain why they felt that the only way out of this was a public vote as, you know, Labour Party conference policy kind of concludes. Ben Bradshaw did like a series of TV interviews outside the cabinet office explaining this and nobody really paid much attention. But I think because the story's moved on a bit, because there's a lot of pressure on Theresa May following last week, what the Sunday papers really wanted to seem to generate was a lot of intrigue and process about the move towards a public vote. So these meetings were reported with a lot of uh, hoopla. But uh, in the end, actually, you know, I think most of the people who were who were there have said they were there to explain why, if the House of Commons is in deadlock, they feel like the best way out of it is to put the deal to the public. And it's interesting because then obviously the government um, have sort of batted this off and said, oh no, we're not going to uh, go down that road. But I think everybody's sort of exercising a level of cynicism given that uh, we were told we weren't having a general election and uh, we were told that the Prime Minister was going to win a deal (laughs) in the Commons and none of those things seem to be happening. So I think everybody will be treating with a level of scepticism the claim that they have ruled out. 
I voted the public. So Steph, like the options now essentially are there's May's deal, there's no deal, a general election or a referendum. And so the idea that they wouldn't have been discussing one of those options just seems completely unbelievable, doesn't it? I think it is just farcical to think that they wouldn't have been talking about it. And it would be totally irresponsible for them to not be talking about it, particularly, as we say, kind of, you know, the momentum building up behind this is is huge. And, you know, we're seeing large swathes of, you know, polls from the country of people saying that that's something that they would quite like to do. Now, obviously, there's still division over it. And the route to it does still seem somewhat complicated in terms of parliamentary process. But yeah, if they weren't to be doing this, it would be totally irresponsible of them, but they're pretty irresponsible. So who who knows what they even think these days? <laughs> the other news story that's been around over the past few days is the government saying that it's uh, upping up its uh, preparations for no deal. Now, obviously, the three of us in this room think that no deal would be a disaster no matter how long you prepare for it. Mm-hmm. The but, three of us and the governor of the Bank of England, so I feel we're on <laughs> safe, safe territory. Mark's coming in in a minute, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but then the idea that you would just have three months to prepare for it, like, is the EU really going to go, oh yeah, they're, they're going to go through with no deal? Surely, like, they're just not going to believe that anyone would actually do that, right? Well, we don't know. And the problem is that the clock is ticking and the course of least resistance at the moment is no deal. And that's what's terrifying, that if we don't manage to do anything between now and March, we leave. That is just what no happens, deal. right? That's we just, just what happens. That's just what will happen. Um, so what we need is some things that happen that are quite difficult. Like we need the prime minister to decide to put this vote back to the public, uh, or we need to find a kind of Brexit deal that the commons will agree to. And both of those things, either preparing for another referendum or at this late stage, getting something on the table that the commons can vote for. Those are both difficult options. Both of those involve quite a lot of action, whereas no deal requires nothing. It feels a little bit to me like, so I can't juggle, right? That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Did you know that I can? I no. can juggle. Yeah. Oh, oh God, this could be a great Christmas episode, especially for a podcast. Um, <laughs> but it feels a bit like... Pre- if we don't have to have a quiz, I will juggle. <laughs> Steph and I can have a juggling competition. It's just be me and Steph win. going, wow, Alison, you're fantastic at juggling. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel preparing for a no deal now is a bit like... If I just suddenly went, I'm going to juggle with swords and I just, I'm not going to practice with balls. I'm just going to juggle with swords yeah. and I think I'll pull that off. That's... And, and, and you know, there is a chance that I could do it. And Most it likely just you'd far. lose an arm. But probably that would happen. Mm. Yeah. And I feel like maybe this is the kind of talking about preparation for no deal at this point is a bit like, it's a bit like that. I wouldn't suggest juggling with swords ever, but if you spent years and years readying for it, then, then sure, give it a go. I love that we've moved into juggling with swords. We can we can definitely move on. That, <laughs> no, no, it I, it's quite a good analogy. The challenge is, how do you match a politics in which everybody says it's not what they want with the reality of the situation that we just discussed, which is it is the default option. Yes, it's definitely like, I mean, other people have described it as like, you know, kind of like uh, warlike mobilisation of resources. Although, you know, in this country, we have we have no real idea of, of what that would actually mean in the modern context. Um, and I suppose the really confusing thing is how, as politicians, we get to assert our will in the House of Commons under a constitution that says that the government should always command the majority in the House of Commons, 
when at the moment the House of Commons and the government are at odds. That is the challenge that we're wrestling with. So we are really at the edges of what our constitution can do. And that's why it seems so bizarre that the option that we're heading towards is the option that nobody wants. So that kind of links into this other way through the deadlock that people have proposed, which is that there would be indicative votes in Parliament where all of the different types of Brexit would go up and MPs can vote for any of them, but none of them are binding. They're just to like be like, hey, this might work. Like a kind of early round in the X factor. Yeah, what, what do you guys think of that? Well, so the first thing is we did this with House of Lords reform and it went really badly and no one option won. So we never did House of Lords reform, even though everyone thinks we should do House of Lords reform. But I don't really think that we can do that in the face of the juggling with swords of no deal, <laughs> as I will now think of it for the rest of the week. So personally, I think it is a pretty poor idea because it would just end up with no one option being able to beat all of the others, I think. And I think you've got to find quite a big consensus in order to move this forward. The problem is, is I don't really see where the big consensus comes from. I think you're right in the sense that I don't think anything would actually win out in it anyway, but I'm not quite seeing a situation where anything wins out at the moment as it is. So I think it's basically a way for her MPs to turn around and be like, why don't we, why don't we try and do something to reason like rather than just locking yourself in Downing Street or standing up at the dispatch box and going, everything is fine. Nothing is wrong. I mean, we'll see. So we're recording this uh, on uh, Monday, just before the prime minister speaks. And we've had these statements every Monday for the past few weeks and like literally nothing New. They're just the same, same, aren't they? She literally just stands up and says the same thing over and over again. But she must feel also that she's in quite a comfortable position after last week. Mm. Because everybody's kind of forgotten that last week there was a motion of no confidence in which, you know, 117 MPs said that they had no confidence in the Prime Minister. We've moved on from that pretty quickly, yeah. I feel. My feeling with the indicative votes is that it's like, sure, that seems like a great idea about two years ago. As soon as the general election result came in Mm. and no one party had a majority, then it's clear that actually getting our Brexit through will be quite difficult. In that situation, I can imagine going, let's have these indicative votes just that then we can... So we can see the kind of course that we need to start by doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably right. And as ever with these conversations, you know, I get asked all the time, like, you know, how do we fix this? And the answer is always like, not by starting from here. Mm. Uh, clock is ticking folks so I think step one has got to be um, in fixing this has got to be um, extend or revoke article 50 because that is what actually changes the no deal situation so if we move to extend or revoke article 50 then we kind of remove the immediate threat of crashing out with no deal the second step then might be some sort of deliberative function. Stella Creasy's suggested a citizens' assembly this week. Gordon Brown had previously talked about constitutional convention. So to consider all of the issues, whether it's kind of like the way that uh, Britain is governed in general or whether it's inequality or other things. And I think you could do something like that that got us to a better place where you deal with Brexit more progressively um, over time and take, take a you know, a more deliberative approach to whether or not it should happen. But yeah, in the end, we have to, number one, stop no deal. Number two, have a plan. So on the plan bit, uh, Stephanie's just I'm worrying me. now because you're <laughs> yeah, like looking at something 
Connor, you're looking at Twitter and then looking at me with a sort of like cheeky grin. Um, that's because Stephanie's just handed me a phone and there is a Laura Koonsberg tweet saying that sources say Corbyn will call for a vote of no confidence in the PM, but not the government, if she does not announce a date for a vote on her Brexit deal as soon as possible. Expect the move from him in response to the PM statement, uh, which, as we just discussed, will be happening in the next kind of half an hour. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that's that's good and all that, but like, does anyone think that like people have got confidence in the prime minister? <laughs> I think that the no confidence procedure has been slightly privileged in all of these discussions as being like the one thing that we have to do, but that's not the case because the prime minister has always already tacitly lost her deal. She didn't put it because she was going to lose it. Therefore, mm. in my view, we count that as having lost it. So we should all be thinking of the plan B and we should all be working on the plan B and working out what that is. The no confidence motion is just what you could do if you thought there was genuinely a possibility of getting a general election. And the de debate amongst people in the Labour Party seems to be some people saying we should do it anyway, even though we're not going to win it because we should have a war of attrition and we should try and do it and do it and do it until we win it, which is what the Tories did to us in the 70s. Or there's other people saying, well, we don't want to do that because if we um, put the motion of no confidence and we lose it, that's effectively a vote of confidence in the prime minister. And we don't want to do that. My view is none of that matters, really, because she's failed to get her deal through the House of Commons. And we need a plan B. And either we find a kind of Brexit the House of Commons can vote for, or we put her deal to the public and Labour campaigns for Remain. I mean, I don't understand why people have got stuck in this kind mm. of like merry-go-round about no confidence procedures. But it kind of gets the ball rolling, I guess, doesn't it? I mean, it, it seems that the Downing Street's plan is that over Christmas, Tory MPs will, will have a think about her withdrawal agreement Spend again. Spend some time with their constituents. And they'll uh, come around to think it's a good idea. I don't know why they think that, but apparently they're just like, there's not much time left, so let's waste some more. But Steph, what's your kind of immediate reaction to this heartbreaking news? I just think it shows the Labour Party still not quite knowing what it wants to do. It's another way of putting off calling no confidence in them. I think it's another, I mean, you know, you saw on the Sunday programmes over the weekend, our line is still, considering we apparently have the most crystal clear line in terms of our Brexit policy that was voted on at conference, I say that somewhat sarcastically, <laughs> like, oi, what I, I mean, I, I can you not recite it? I can, I can recite word it for word, word for word, literally etched so. in my brain. She did it in the pub the other night. It was yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. I did, yeah. but however, Andrew Grin was then basically saying that we would like if there was another referendum, he wasn't saying that we'd commit to being Remain. We'd want, we'd want a Labour Brexit. And like, but I thought that was the whole point of what Keir said in Labour Party conference hall that like Remain yeah, would be said, on the Remain said would be on the ballot paper. But it's yet again the front bench are totally designed divided on this and Andrew Grimm was like no that's not what okay. we're saying so there's a level of confusion there that I think is slightly ludicrous and I think yet again it's that idea of you know we want a general election we still don't know what we'd be campaigning for in that general election in terms of Brexit policy so I do just think I think it's again I think the Labour Party needs to kind of I think the front bench need to wake up a bit in terms of realising that one the clock is running down two that's what she'd quite like because it leaves her with no deal or her deal. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we want in any way, shape or form. And I just think, you know, and I if think you're the, that desperate for a general election and you've got no confidence in the government and you think you can win it, go for it. And I think also that the closer we get to March, the more our priorities just got to be extend or revoke Article 50. Yeah. 
And so actually it it should just take a sweep away all of this processology. But so yeah, I was just gonna say, but I this approach of having a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister, but not in the government, um, I'm not sure is constitutionally significant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the so presumably- the issue here is that it's it wouldn't be a confidence motion under the fixed term parliaments yeah. act because that's the real way that y- you can force a general election. If you win a motion of no confidence using the required wording for that act. And then in any case, the government has 14 days to try and form a new, try government. and form a new government. But in this case, even if Theresa May lost, she wouldn't, she, she, she wouldn't, wouldn't have, have to, to resign, anything. would she? No, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, and I don't think she would either, because I think what we've demonstrated is, that we can force votes as an opposition, you know, four days out of five, and sometimes the government will lose them. And when they do lose them, they tend to ignore it. So as I say, I think all of this is processology. I Mm. think that we should be focused on the fact that we're probably going to need to provoke or extend Article 50, that then we need a plan about how to get out of this cul-de-sac, which could be either find a Brexit deal that everyone can support or a public vote i think clearly the more and more people find out about brexit the more i think lots of people are thinking that the public should have their say again which i understand and i think that's what our focus should be well um if people at home want to do something this week uh, the people's vote campaign has set up a new tool for people to get in touch with their mp if you go to demand vote and pop in your postcode that's an easy way for you to contact your representative about a final say on Brexit. We're going to take a quick break now, but next we'll be hearing from Stefan Rolnick speaking to Luke Lithgow from infacts.org about the role media plays in covering Brexit. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think it's fair to say Brexit has the government in a bit of a mess, a mess largely brought about by a simplified referendum on an extremely complicated subject. Communicating the benefits and the complexities of the EU to the public was one of the biggest challenges of the Remain campaign, and it was one that the pro-Remain fact-checking website, in fact, took head-on. Today, 
I've got Luke Lithgow, staff writer at InFact with me, to talk to us about how well the media is covering Brexit and whether they could be doing any better. I'm going to go ahead and guess they might be able to do a little bit better. Otherwise, this is going to be a very short conversation. But I guess, first of all, you know, off the back of a very chaotic week for the Prime Minister, leaves a lot of us asking kind of how did we end up here? Politics felt so kind of boring and pleasant, almost trivial, you know, if you look kind of 10, 15 years ago. Does the fact that in fact even exists point to a problem the way our media has been covering politics over the last 10 years? Yeah, I think the EU referendum uh, was a particularly interesting creature. And I think you asked the question, how do we get here? I think David Cameron probably just got very cocky with referenda, quite frankly, and thought he could settle the Europe question within his own party with another referenda off the back of uh, winning the AV referendum and the Scottish referendum and the 2015 general election. Um, he was riding high. But you're right, it's, it was a particularly uh, tricky one. And I suppose what the people were being asked really was, should, should we be in this international trading block with political elements and kind of infiltrates all the different parts of your life? That's the kind of question they're being asked. And they didn't, I, I don't think any anybody particularly had all of that at their, at their fingertips. I know even the staff at Infax didn't when we got started know half the things we know now about, about the EU and how the EU works. And It's and always hilarious to see, you know, people with posters down on College Green, you know, with instead of kind of slogans like make America great again, they've got things about trade deals and customs and stuff like that. It's almost bizarre. Yeah. Who, who, who even knew about customs unions and the single market exactly. and any of this kind Everyone's of stuff? Everyone's a pundit then, on it now. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then uh, you think about the Irish border, for example, um, incredibly complicated thing. We all knew there was a border between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland. No one had a clue how it worked, I don't think. Um, certainly Brexiters didn't in the campaign as some of their comments show, and we'll probably talk about some of that later, but also the Remain side as well. And as I say, people were being asked to make this choice about whether they should be in or out of this incredibly complicated uh, system. But actually what the campaign turned into is, are you happy with the way things are? And the answer was 52 to 48. No, I'm not happy with the way things are. And the fact that people like David Cameron and establishment figures were fronting it at the time uh, kind of warped it a bit. So yeah, it, it wasn't necessarily about the facts of the EU, but that's what Infact's attempted to sort of tackle and get that into the debate a bit more. On the centre-left, you know, the EU is a big part of being internationalist, is a big part of who we are. But it seems that when it comes to every general election, there's all kinds of misinformation coming from the other side about, you know, what we might do to the economy or what they've been doing for the NHS. And these are kind of, you feel like you're banging your head against the wall every time the election comes around. And it's really hard to learn anything new. And I'm just really interested to see from your point of view, from your almost privileged point of view at the forefront of this referendum that was based so heavily on lies, what you learn on the front lines of trying to fact check that. You mentioned a few things like the Irish border. I guess the NHS was another example of that. I mean, obviously there was the £350 million for the NHS, which um, we were plugging away at since it sort of first reared its head and eventually we got the uh, ONS to say it was a misuse of uh, official statistics. But I think that goes back to this idea that actually it was all about sort of emotion and and the questions weren't necessarily about the technicalities and that idea that it was a misuse of official st statistics. By that point, things, the, you know, the horses had left mm. the stables and it didn't really, 
you know. I, mean, I was really going to ask, right, because that famous Michael Gove quote about, you know, we've had enough of experts. Well, oh. like, I mean, the bit leading up to that in the question, we were talking about, the, you know, the ONS, all these different trade unions, all these acronyms, and it kind of feels like that's not really currency anymore. Mm -hmm. But that's what the EU is all about, I think. I, that's, that's what the debate was about, um, or, or what the, the decision to stay within the EU or not is all about. It's, it's about how this like really intricate, complex international system works, but that wasn't what the debate could be about because you can't put that on the side of a bus, you can't sell that to voters. <laughs> it's not like a nice, helpful soundbite. Mm. So, I'm, I mean, you, you talk about lies. There were, I think, quite a few, but I think also a lot of it was just simplification. Sure. Um, and a lot of it taking complicated economics a lot of the time mm. and instead of saying oh there's a range that could affect you people yeah. were plucking figures out of the air mm. and that's for example the remain campaign we're doing that they're plucking yeah. this figure will be how much money you'll lose and in fact also had had a go at the remain campaign during the okay. the campaign to sort of say you can't pin it to that you've mm. got you've got to try and be a bit more a bit more, mm. um, you know, credible with, with some of the stuff you're putting out there. It sounds very similar to the kind of complaints that people who have to communicate complex things like climate change mm -hmm. repeat as well. And, you know, like you say, the complex acronyms, the kind of the models, the theories, the predictions. I mean, it feels like, and, you know, I, I guess this isn't necessarily your question to answer, but I'm interested what you think in terms of how good a job the EU has done in general of this kind of public engagement exercise. Because it felt like you were kind of, the Leave campaign had such a head start on you in terms of just being able to kind of throw all this. Boris Johnson, as we all know, been working as a journalist for years, kind of throwing these things about. I mean, did you feel like they had a head start on you in terms of, were you defending a position that felt kind of weak and outdated? I suppose... Uh, that's a difficult question to, uh, there's a few questions sort yeah. of wrapped up in there. Yeah. I think the EU, all the information is out there. It's actually a very transparent yeah. body. Um, it's got a lot of sort of statistics showing how things are going. Mm -hmm. It's quite, uh, there's a lot of easy explainers online. If, if you look in the right places about sort of how each separate part of it works, but there's also different parts to it. Mm -hmm. And also you have to do your own research. Um, and people aren't sort of always hopping on the sort of Europa.eu uh, <laughs> yeah. domains uh, to sort of check out the latest, I must confess, the latest directives. <laughs> but what we do get is the media. And we've had, I, I'd say since, basically since Boris set up shop in Brussels back in the sort of, you know, late early 90s, we've had uh, right-wing media, which has been very uh, anti-Europe, very much pitching it as a battle between, you know, the plucky, proud Brits versus the sort of duplicitous EU, which is putting in these regulations, which are making everyone's life miserable. And also politicians weren't making it easy in, in the fact that when something went wrong, the EU was quite an easy thing to blame. Um, when something went right, it was quite easy to hold it up as a successful policy. Um, and that, that holds for the Tories and for New Labour, both who are guilty of that kind of thing. Even if, even if policy belonged almost solely to the EU and we were just sort of implementing it. Obviously, Prediction is a bit of a mugs game at the moment, but it does certainly feel like the events of the last few weeks, a people's vote feels kind of more possible than it has done for a long time. And I'm just interested to say, you know, off the back of the last campaign, what kind of lessons you as an, in fact, as an organisation has taken away and maybe the campaign more generally in terms of, you say, in terms of making the argument, you know, are facts always enough to win the debate? I mean, what's the strategy? What's the outlook for the campaign? Should we get a people's vote? I think it's probably worth saying that Infax is part of the People's mm. Vote campaign where we're within that umbrella of organisations. Uh, obviously, I don't, only, don't speak for the entire campaign and yeah. just speak for Infax. But as far as what Infax has learned, I think the facts are important. 
but they're no way the, the most important thing. Emotion is the most important thing in this debate. And that's become clear, whether that's emotion over sovereignty and the power of, of the UK within the world, the influence of UK within the world, that kind of stuff, or whether it's about sort of personal, uh, how, how things affect you personally, whether that's your rights, whether that's your wallet and uh, obviously immigration as well as another sort of powerfully emotive topic. So I think what we've learned is, yes, we are going to still pursue this fact-based case for staying in the European Union, but we can package it better. We can, you know, boil things down to factually accurate, but still more simple sort of nuggets. And you can distribute them across social media in a very kind of like digestible format. And you can use all sorts of different different mediums uh, for doing that. But I think that's important. But it's a mixture of the both. So it's you, you make your emotional case and you underpin it with the facts. Just finishing up now, on a on a personal level, I mean, I know a lot of our activists, you know, incredibly tired. It's been a very busy year. I know here at Progress, you know, it's been a busy year as it has been everywhere. And the last couple of weeks, especially for everyone, it's been very busy. And I think in that kind of fatigue, sometimes comes a bit of a wariness or a cynicism. And I'm always interested to ask people, you know, are you are you optimistic about the next year? It feels like an awful lot could change. You know, is, is there any optimism we can take away from this about, you know, Happy Warriors making the facts case based against Brexit. I mean, an awful lot will change next year. 29 is the year that everything will change. Mm. We will either leave the European Union or we will mm. we will not leave the European Union. And then we will have to deal with the consequences of either of those, mm. those outcomes. I personally am very optimistic for a people's vote campaign emerging. Um, I would say that, obviously. Mm. <laughs> um, but no, I am, I'm seriously optimistic. And the reason is because it just seems that nothing else will stand up at the moment. We're sort of applying our, you know, factual brains to what's going on. And every other alternative that is being floated, whether that's Theresa May's deal, which I think we've seen has a woeful lack of support in Parliament, and it's unlikely that that will be renegotiated to a satisfactory degree. Other things coming up, like this kind of Norway model option or Labour's option of having a kind of jobs-first Brexit where we have a customs union and we get power over trade and we don't have to have free movement of people, but we do get lots of access to the single market. All of these kind of things are going to meet roadblocks and we can see them coming a mile off. And there's going to come a point uh, when the sort of clock is ticking and uh, we need a way out of this. And for me, a people's vote is the sensible. And I'd say after three years of new facts on the ground, things changing. It's also the democratic way out of this. Um, I don't think we can leave this to politicians anymore because they clearly can't decide amongst themselves. I think everyone can agree on that. Luke, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you very much, Stephen. Every week we ask a political pub quiz question, which is then answered on Friday's show, just to test your knowledge. This week, the question is, how many times did a government lose a vote of no confidence in the 20th century? send an email to office at progressonline.org.uk to show off if you think you know the answer, which we'll reveal on Friday's show. Progressive Britain will also have episodes over Christmas and New Year, so whether you're listening on Acast, Spotify or iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And please do leave us a rating on iTunes to spread the Christmas cheer. Thanks for listening. You 
You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.